Good to see you guys this morning. How's everybody doing? You're here? All right, good. Well, men, I hope to see you at the prayer night coming up. It'd be great to see you there and after the service, helping pack some food. I love that we do that as a church. It's a part of what we're all about. It's our identity here. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, well, if you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a series. We're going through the book of Mark. We've been in it for months. We've got a few more weeks left. And the section we're on now is, look, it's the way of the cross. It's following Jesus's downward descent from heaven. God in heaven, he enters the human timeline, becomes human, this downward mobility all the way to the grave. And so we're going to follow that journey together with Jesus. On the passage that Crystal just read that we are in, we're still in this time where the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law are hammering Jesus. They're coming after him with everything they got. And so we're going to look at that today. Um, One of the primary questions that I'm thinking about wrestling with is why? Why are they so intent at tearing down Jesus? What's going on inside their hearts that they feel like, man, we just need to get rid of this guy. We got to get this guy out of here. And how do we not operate like the Pharisees? How do we avoid? What, do we, what can we learn from them so that we don't end up just like the religious leaders? Um, I'm the type of person, I don't know about you, but I crave attention I brought in this ladder here today because it demonstrates what we're talking about. I'm like the guy that's on the ladder. I'm like, look at me. I'm a big deal. I crave attention in every area of my life. Uh, when I was like six years old, there's an there's a old video, a home video. My dad's got like the recorder, you know, with the, the VH te- VHS tape in it. And he's filming us. We're camping. My older brother's stealing the show. He's talking, and my dad's like, oh, yeah, you're so, you know, so great. And I'm literally in the background, like, screaming for attention, like, look at me. Look at me. And at one point in the home video, I run up to the camera, I grab it, and I put it in my face. I'm like, look at me, just screaming for attention. And now that I'm older, if you ask my kids, nothing has changed. It's the, <laughs> it's the exact same issue. I'm in the home, like, trying to entertain my kids, make them laugh. My wife's like, what are you doing? You know, I'm like, I don't know. I just, just crave this attention. Uh, doesn't even matter if it's like negative attention. That's attention. I'll take it. I'll take it, whatever it is. Um, I'm, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a three on the Enneagram. It's a personality test. And so the three's the achiever. Any other achievers in the room? You've taken it and you're like, that's me. I see a few hands. Uh, it's the one who you want to get the job done. You want to work really hard. Uh, why? So that you can get the gold star. So someone notices you and says, hey, you did a great job, good job, and pat you on the back. So everything, everything in my life is just this search, craving to be seen, to be noticed, to be recognized. Um, I think we all have this in one way or another. It expresses itself in different ways, but this need to be seen. And so we're going to do a little exercise this morning where you're going to identify in yourself what is that, what does that look like? in your own life. So I've got three categories I kind of came up with. Um, It's not comprehensive, but see if you find yourself in one of these categories, all right? So the first one, the first one is the overachiever. Okay, the overachiever. This is the person that's like, you're going to do whatever it takes to win and to get ahead. You're the one at the top of the ladder up the quickest. You're like, I got to the top first. I win. I'm the best doesn't matter what area of life, you're you're in a competition. Uh, The challenge, one of the negative sides of this is you tend to dominate or squash other people. 
doesn't matter. I got to win. Got to get ahead. I got the biggest bank account, the best title at my work, biggest house. Like, I'm the overachiever. Do I have any overachievers in the room? You're like, raise your hand. I thought, <laughs> yeah, they, the hands go up quick. They're like, yeah, that's me. I win. I had my hand up first. I'm the overachiever. <laughs> that's good. I just saw a few of those. That's really good. All right. Um, okay, the next category is the people pleaser. The people, one hand already went out. You're quick. That's good. We got you're smart. Let me explain it a little bit. So the people pleaser, it's like you can't say no. You're just like, yeah, everybody, you want their attention. You don't want to make people feel bad. So you don't have good boundaries. Um, that's definitely an issue for me. I struggle with that. Um, apologize often. Texts or emails, you're like, oh, I'm sorry, my bad. No, it's my fault. I'm so sorry. You don't want to, you know, rub people the wrong way. That's the people pleaser. Tendency to be a victim, a victim mentality. Raise your hands for you. Like, yeah, I'm a people pleaser. That's me. Got a handful. Yeah, there's a lot in the room. Okay. All right. Third category. Um, this is a good one. This is the know-it-all. The know-it-all, right? Okay, you're in a conversation with this person, and they're like, well, actually, I was just reading the other day in this article. It's like having like Siri always with you. You're just like, or Google. It's like, how do you know everything about everything, right? They're like offer unsolicited advice all the time. Um, even if you're good at something, they'll be like, oh, no, let me tell you. Let me tell you what I, what I think about that. So very opinionated, want to be the smartest person in the room, have a tendency to be rigid, and sometimes judgmental in their thinking. Uh, who's a know-it-all? Do we have any know-it-alls? Yeah, there we go. Good. Look at you guys. Self-identifying. If you didn't raise your hand at all, just ask someone you love, and they will quickly tell you <laughs> what you are. Whoa. Uh, they will identify you in a heartbeat. So. But this isn't a bad thing. This is just a natural human tendency for us in, all, in our lives to search out attention. We crave it. We want to be seen. We, we want that affection. We want to feel loved. And so our tendency is to go find that in other places. All right, we know, Christ followers, we know that our, where we really find that is in Jesus. It's only in God that we are fully seen, fully loved. We don't have to earn his affection. We can't lose his affection. We're totally loved, totally seen in his presence, but we forget that, right? And the problem with this, if we continue down that path, we begin to create damage in ourselves and the people we love in our relationships, why are we talking about this? Why are we even going there? Because this is what was happening in the hearts of the religious leaders. Right? They're looking for their affection in all the wrong places. Our need for attention is satisfied in receiving God's affection. Our need for attention is only satisfied in receiving God's affection. And the religious leaders, they're literally in the presence of God himself, and they couldn't see it. They couldn't even see God, even though they're in his presence. So I want to look at what is the role of the, the religious leaders? Like, what, what were they even there to do? Um, it was their job. They were the moral religious authority on the law. They were supposed to take the Torah, these 600-plus laws that a good Jewish person was supposed to follow. They are supposed to interpret that law, communicate that law to the Jewish people. So they're important. They had, that was a big job. It was an important job that they had to do. And so this was our identity. Everything in them was about this role. They took it very seriously. 
So imagine, put yourself in their shoes, um, put yourself in their shoes. Imagine that you hear this story of this young gun rabbi, this startup rabbi. He's going out throughout the land. Miracles are happening. People are being healed. You're like, ooh, you start to feel, ooh, that's a, you know, a little com- competitive, a little competition going on here. Who is this guy? And not only that, he begins to break some of the laws. He's not following the Sabbath laws or the unclean rules around washing hands. He's like breaking laws. Like, that's, that's not good. Like, I'm the moral authority. This, we, can't, we can't have this. And then he goes even farther, and this Jewish rabbi begins to claim that he's the son of God. He is the Messiah himself. And so if you're one of those religious leaders, like all your alarm bells are going off, you're like, we have to do everything in our power to stop this, this guy. So that's, that's the place the religious leaders are coming from. Je- Jesus challenged their beliefs, their traditions, their identity, and who they were. I love this line by one of the commentators I read. It says, up to this point, many teachers of the law allowed their convictions to be crystallized codes, solidified institutions, and petrified dogmas. The prophet became a priest of the establishment. Charisma became an office, and love became routine. Their hearts weren't right. They just let their, this, this ego, this thing in them, this desire for attention festered in their hearts for so long they couldn't even see Jesus. They were so focused on that behavior modification rather than heart transformation inside of them. So when you get to verse 28, here's this scene again. We have a teacher of the law coming after Jesus again. They're like, okay, we're going we're gonna to get this guy. We're going to prove him wrong, prove that he's a fraud. And so they got there like, okay, here's our final question. We're going to ask him, of all the commandments, which is most important? What's the most important commandment? How's he going to get out of this one? We got him. And then Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And they're just like, dang, how did he do that again? You know, it's about the heart. Jesus is saying all the laws, I'm not throwing out the law, but all those 600 laws fit within this, these two commandments. And then I love this scene. Uh, the teacher of the law, it says, is sitting across from from Jesus, and he's like pondering his response, and he looks at God himself and says, you're right, that was a good answer, I'll give you that one, you know, like as if, and we never do that, right, we never think we know more than God, but I just love that scene, he's like, yeah, you got it, good job, Jesus, you did well, good answer, and then Jesus, in his grace, looks at that guy, and there's the one time he said this to a religious leader, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, He's like, you're bent, you're, you know, I see your heart. You get it. You get what I'm saying. You're going in the right direction. Keep it up. He says that to this religious leader. It's not about following a moral code. It's about following a person. That's what Jesus is trying to get the religious leaders to do. And that's what he's trying to do in our hearts as well. So at this point, the debate's over. Jesus wins. <laughs> the court case is done. They cannot prove Jesus wrong. And so he kind of goes on the offensive. Jesus poses the next question and then answers his own question. And he says this. He says, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? 
And so in this, what Jesus is trying to tell them is he's saying, yes, I'm in the lineage of, of David, in the line of kings, but I'm also God. I'm over King David. I'm above him. I'm the son of God. I'm the king of kings. And so that's what he's teaching the religious leaders in this moment. So at this point, um, he's given them plenty of chances to, to recognize that he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. They're not they're blinded. Their hearts are in a place they can't even see him. And so he just kind of drops the hammer on him, on them. And this is what he says. He says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Look at me. You know, they're up on the ladder saying, look at, I'm important. I'm a big deal. Look at me, this craving for attention. Most important seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. Just, you can see it, right? You can see the unhealth in their hearts just craving their identities, craving this attention. And then it says they devour the widow's house, which uh, we're going to come back to that, and, show, and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be severely punished. Wow, that's got to hurt. <laughs> I don't want to be called out like that. They've lost their identity. They can't even see who they are. Have you had that moment where your identity, your self-worth was so wrapped up in a title that when it goes away, you're just left like empty? You guys ever had that? Maybe in the workplace, um, you were passed over for a promotion and you're like, wow, that hurt. Like so much of me was wrapped up in getting that next promotion. Maybe you lost a job or retired from work and you're just left like, oh my gosh, now what? What do I do? Who am I? So much, I got so much from that role, that title. Uh, maybe it's a parent, this is a hard one, when your kids uh, leave, go off to college, and you're an empty nester, and you're like, as a mom or a parent, you're just like, oh man, I mean, part of that's a natural grieving, right? For sure. But then how much of our identity is just wrapped up in being a parent? So much there. Um, I, I think these crisis moments should be moments of awareness for us. Is there something you feel that pain in you and it's, it's, it should be an awareness. Like, what's going on in my heart? Why am I feeling this? I had a moment like this a few months ago uh, where I had to check my heart. I um, was part of a, starting a nonprofit organization about 10 years ago. Me and this other gal started this nonprofit. I've been in a volunteer capacity serving on the board for a number of years. And um, just maybe a few months ago, the university I graduated from, they, they produced this like quarterly magazine. Okay, it comes out, and they highlight all the great things that alumni are doing in their careers and impacting the world, and aren't these people so great? And so on one of these uh, magazines that came out recently, they featured our, our organization, our nonprofit. And the person they featured was not me, okay? It was not me. Uh, it was the, the other gal, the co-founder, who is the executive director and has built the entire organization, not me. But it was that moment where I'm like on the ladder, like, what about me? Aren't I a big deal? Aren't I important? Does anybody see me? And it was just, I felt that. And I'm like, ooh, that's not good. Can't let that fester. I can't let that keep going. That's dangerous. So for me, I had to confess that. First, I had to real, realize that was happening in my heart. And then I confessed it to my wife, 
got off my chest a men's group. I talked to them about it, and it was gone. It went away. It didn't like stay in there. You know, I didn't feel guilty about it, but I was, ooh, this is a big deal. I dealt with it and moved past it. It's that reminder, our need for attention is only satisfied in receiving God's affection. It's the only place we can fully be filled up, seen, and known. I want to return to that statement we read about the widow's houses being devoured. So when Jesus would have said this, this would have been a red flag for the people listening. Because one of the primary functions, or one of the jobs of the temple and the religious leaders was to care for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. This was what they were there to do. Some of the resources from the church were supposed to go to this. And so the fact that they're devouring their homes, that's like elder abuse. They're like taking advantage of these widows. And the reason why it was important in this day and age, because it was an agrarian, patriarchal society where a woman would, want to, would have to be under the care of a parent, a father who could provide a husband who could provide, and if that person was widowed, then the church would provide. That was just the society it was, and so this was the job of the church, to care for their financial, their estate, their spiritual needs. And so not only are they not caring for them, but they're taking advantage of these women. We read about it in Deuteronomy 14, 28, it says this, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of the year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work. So the Old Testament is part of the law. There's other verses in Acts. The early church dealt with this issue. Caring for widows and orphans and the poor is like a spiritual thermometer or a metric that tells us the condition of our hearts. Whether or not we're caring for the least of these is an indicator of the spiritual health of our hearts. It's a thermometer. And so I think at this point, uh, we, would, we just have to pause, pump the brakes, and say, how are we doing as a church with this? We can't just pass judgment on the early church. We need to reflect and say, where are we at as individuals and corporately if we give here and participate? How, are, how, are, how, are our, how is our money being used to care for the widows and the orphans? And so um, everything about our church financially is online. You can go on there and see how the money's being spent and utilized. And uh, last year, we spent over $2 million caring for the poor through our benevolence, through our missions, through our outreach programs, uh, which is in a significant portion of the budget. So we're heading in the right direction. We're going to keep going in that direction. It's a, it's a thermometer of how is my heart. So the last scene we see is Jesus. Um, he's, he's just hammered the religious leaders. And the next scene we see is he's in the temple. He's in the church, and he's watching the most important part of the service, the offering. Right? He's sitting there going, why? Why does he care about this part? Because there's also a connection. Another spiritual metric is how we spend our money. I don't know why it's that way, but there's some connection between our money and the things we value in our hearts. 
right? And Jesus knows that. So here he is. He's watching one more time. The religious leaders, how do they go about offering and giving? What does this look like? So we read this. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow, so he's, using, he's referencing back to the poor widow he just talked about who was being devoured, came and put in two very small copper coins, only worth a few cents. So what we see here is one, that this was a public time of giving. The church would get up, they'd walk down, they'd drop their money in these offering baskets called, they were called shofar chests. A shofar chest was like this big wooden box, and on the top it had this like trumpet, like top to it, with like a funnel, so at the top you'd throw your money in there, and you could hear it. So you could hear it fall down that funnel, you could hear it hit the bottom, and so everyone knew how much you were giving. So the religious leaders, they're going in, or the wealthy, they're dropping their money in there, and people hear a lot hitting, and they're like feeling good about themselves. People are like, oh man, yeah, that guy gave a lot. Good on him. Can you imagine this scene, (laughs) the amount of judgment and condemnation that's happening in this public offering? So they dump in a ton of money. Everybody's like, yeah, good on them. And then here comes that poor widow again, right? She shows up with her two pennies. She drops it in there. And what do you hear? Barely anything. You just hear these two little coins drop, and everybody's thinking like, ooh, not good, you know. Ah, she did not give very much. So imagine like the public shame this woman is feeling. She's already been devoured and taken advantage of, and then now she's in this line where the church should be using that money to care for her, and she's in line giving her two cents and publicly humiliated in front of this crowd. And so I think what Jesus is pointing out, what Mark is pointing out, is that before we get to the place where we talk about her, um, how heroic she was and extravagant in her giving, we need to recognize that first she was also a victim. Right? She was taken advantage of. She was publicly humiliated. And even in that place, she was generous. She was extravagant in her giving. She demonstrated what Jesus talked about. This is how you love God, with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and your strength. That last little bit she had, she trusted God with it. I don't think I would have done that if the church wasn't doing their job. Why would I give the church more? Why would I go and drop my money off in that? But this is what true love looks like. This is what Jesus was trying to point out to the teachers of the law. And brought in like a little compare and contrast chart. This is, this is what Jesus was trying to show, the difference between a heart that is wrapped up in itself. The look at me, see me heart of the religious leaders and the poor widow. The religious leaders at the top of the ladder, you know, hanging out the top, getting all the attention, look at me. But we meet Jesus at the bottom of the ladder. He's at the bottom He's on this downward ascent from power and authority all the way to the grave. And so that's where the poor widow was. Fully humbled, but yet fully connected to Jesus at the bottom 
of that ladder. And yet, I love that she did it publicly. I wouldn't have done that. I'd be hiding, I'd be somewhere else, but she makes this public in front of everybody, fully embarrassed. She still drops her two coins in there, knowing that she'll be judged for that. And isn't that what Jesus did on the cross, though, right? He was on that cross, this public display of his love and affection for us. Fully humiliated. Here he is, the God of the universe, naked, beaten, surrendered of all his power, hanging on a cross saying, I love you. Just like this poor widow. This public expression, this public declaration of love. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. We crave upward mobility. I want to get up the ladder. I want to be seen. I want to be noticed. And Jesus is saying, no, the, the way of the cross, the Christian life is taking steps down the ladder. I'll meet you at the bottom. And that place, I'll lift you up. In his power, he'll lift us up. And so in just a little bit, at the end of the service, I want to give us all a chance to respond uh, on the condition of our hearts and wrestle with that with God. So some of us, maybe you've never invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life. You've been at the top of that ladder looking for attention, looking for money, looking for title, looking for more followers, more likes on social media. And you're like, I'm still left wanting. <laughs> There's still a gap. There's still a hole. You can only be satisfied in Jesus. And so we want to give you a chance at the end of the service to respond to that. And the rest of us, maybe there's something in your heart where you're like, ooh, I got to get that out. I don't want that to fester. That people-pleasing, that squashing others, trying to get ahead, the know-it-all, or whatever else it is where you're seeking attention. Make sure you've identified that in your heart. And we'll talk to God about that in just a bit. So this other indicator, we talked about these spiritual thermometers. One is how are we caring for the poor and the vulnerable? And the second one that's brought up is what are we doing with our money? What are we doing with our money? There's over 2,000 verses in Scripture that talk about money um, because in some way there's an attachment to what we value and how we spend our money. God doesn't need our money, so for him it's not about money, it's about our hearts. He wants to get through and look at our hearts and say, does this person love me? And just one of the many ways we express that is through giving of what we do with our resources. I love what 2 Corinthians um, 9, 7 says this, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, like the widow, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we don't give because we're sitting here talking about giving as a church. If you ever feel pressured or anything is going on in your heart, that's not the right way to give. If anything, you should be encouraged this week to spend time with God talking about it. God, what does this mean for me? Where am I at? Where's the condition of my heart in terms of how I value my money? For me, I couldn't stand up here and talk about giving unless you knew that I give as well as a church member here. My wife and I, we give um, a tithe at the first of every month to the church, and then beyond that, we support a few nonprofit organizations. And for me, one of the things that's helped me in my giving is having a plan around it. I plan a lot of areas of my life, and so I've started to plan around giving and what that looks like. So we're going to use our nice little ladder again 
uh, to help us do that. And so if you're like, I don't even know where to start, I don't know what giving looks like, um, here's something that's helped me. And the first step in giving is if you've never given anything, is to just start by giving something. That's a good place to start. Give something. It could be 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks between you and God. What is God calling you to give? What does that look like in your life? Maybe you're at that place where you're like, I throw money sometimes at the church for different causes, different things, but it's not really planned. It's just kind of random. The next step is to have a better plan around it and to give a percentage. Is that the next one? Yeah, percentage. 1%, 2%, 5%, whatever that is. So now it's like it's thought out, it's planned. Again, between you and God, God doesn't need our money. He's going to accomplish his purpose in the world with or without us, right? He's been doing it for 2,000 years. It's about our hearts. And then if you give a percentage, the next would be to give a tithe or 10%. And then if you're doing that, it's like the widow. What does extravagant giving look like in your life? What does that mean for you? I've got a guy in my, one of my men's groups who gave me a kind of a flipped way of thinking about my money in terms of giving. And I said, you know, I was trying to get material for this weekend. I'm like, what the heck? How do you guys think about giving? What does that look like? And he's like, well, in my brain, all of my money, everything I have is God's 100%. He's like, and I debit what I need to live off from that 100%. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live whatever I need, 60%, 80%, 95% to live off, provide for my family, and the rest I give to God. It's just a flip way of seeing your money. It's, it's all mine, and what am I going to give to God? No, it's all God's. And what am I debiting in order to live my life? So that was helpful for me. Uh, at the end of last year, Ryan invited us as a church to consider what would it look like for us as a community to increase our giving by 1%. Imagine what else we could do as, as a community. He said, a little from a lot goes a long way. And so this week, as you talk to God about the condition of your heart, let this be in the conversation, in your prayers. What am I doing with my money? Where am I spending my money? What does that look like for me? Well, in landing today, uh, in ending today, I think I want to re revisit that original question we asked. How do we not end up like the religious leaders, where our hearts are so far down this line or stand at the top of the ladder that we can't even see Jesus in our lives right now? Where are we missing him because we're so caught up in that craving for attention? What do I need to surrender? I think the starting place is, is acting like this poor widow and just believing in your heart that it's in Christ. It's only in Jesus that we are fully seen, fully known, fully loved. What's blocking that? What do I need to surrender? What do I need to get out so I can be filled with that love? Our need for attention is only satisfied. It's only satisfied in God's affection. So as we close, I want to invite the band out. They're going to come on out. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. We can go ahead and we'll stand to our feet and we're going to respond today. So as we're thinking, um, let's go ahead and actually let's close our eyes. Close our eyes and just be talking to God right now. Assessing your heart. What is that thing that's in your heart that you're like, yeah. I need to confess this. I need to get this out.
I want to be fully seen by God, fully accepted by God. First, I want to just invite people who've never made a commitment to follow Jesus. You've been running from God. You've been, again, on the top of that ladder looking for that attention, looking for validation, looking for title, looking for something to fill that void up. And you can admit, you're like, yeah, it's not being filled. There's still a gap. If that's you, I want you to just raise your hand. Say, that's me. I want Jesus to fill that gap. Remember, he was on that cross. He made a public declaration of his love for us. He stood up there. He didn't just have to raise a hand. He hung on a cross and said, I love you. So if that's you, go ahead and raise your hand. Just say, yeah. Let's give this thing a try. <laughs> Let's see if Jesus is who he says he is. Awesome. I see a few hands out there. Let's just pray. If that's you, you can put your hand down and just pray along with me. Jesus, I want to invite you to be Lord of my life. I've been standing on top of the ladder trying to do it on my own strength. And there's just something missing. I'm still not full. And God, if you are real, I want to feel you this week. I want to feel a real sense of peace in my heart. I want to feel deep satisfaction and contentment. Show up in my life in a real physiological way this week. You're not just an idea. You're not just a historical figure. You are a person. You are God. And so I just want to invite you to be Lord of my life. Fill me with your love. Let me feel that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, give it up for people. And for the rest of us, if there's still something in there where you're like, I'm a believer, I'm a Christ follower, but there's just that, there's still that thing in me that's seeking attention. Um, Just confess that to the Lord right now. Let's pray and just pray along with me and offer that up to God. Jesus, there's uh, parts of us that still, we're, we're still being made in your image. We're still being sanctified. We're not there yet. We haven't arrived. But we don't want to end up like these religious leaders where that stuff festered for so long that we can't even see you. We're so set in our beliefs. We're so set in our ways. We're so ruled by title, by resources, that we, we just can't even see you. God, we confess that. We're not going to feel guilty about it, but we're going to get it out there and move on. God, fill us up. You fill up that void in our hearts because we know you can. You've done it before, and you'll do it again, Jesus. So fill that up in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.